0: Do you come ready to hear from the Lord every time we gather? God's already spoken to me in the worship, but I believe when we hear the word that he has something to say, and not all of us hear the same thing. You may say we're all hearing the same message. The Holy Spirit applies it in hearts in different ways. So, Father, we just ask you today to come in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, your word is living and powerful. It works in ways that no other book that no other writing in all human history worked because these are words penned by people who are moved by your Holy Spirit. I pray today, Lord, that you would make your word alive in us and that you would apply these words directly in our heart exactly the way you want it to be. And Lord, I pray that not only would we be inspired, but God, that we would be changed, that we would be challenged to walk in a deeper love and a deeper obedience to you. Give us wisdom today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, does the Bible ever say that it's okay to judge? You want to vote? Anybody? How many think the Bible says it's okay to judge sometimes? How many of you say that it's never okay to judge? Actually, you're both right, and some of you didn't raise your hands or wrong. So anyway, <laughs> you were just afraid. He's going to pull a trick on me. I knew he was going to do that. Sorry about that. One of the most quoted Bible verses. I read this a couple years ago. It was a survey that went out. It used to be John three sixteen. Remember, you'd see that at all the ball games. There was this chart with John three sixteen, and somebody I don't know if it was the same person got into every NFL stadium. There was a conspiracy. Well, now it's John. I think one of the most recognized verses in America is Matthew seven one. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And a lot of times when people say that, they're saying it in a, in a defensive way. In other words, don't judge me, because if you judge me, you're going to get judged. But I think that, uh, and, and by the way, how many of us have felt unjustly judged at times? Come on, you can all raise your hands on that one. Isn't it true? Sometimes we can even feel uh, wrongly judged at church. People will go to church, and uh, they, if they go in with a heart that's critical, their own heart can be critical, they'll walk away saying they were judging me but other times you go to a church and they are judging you, and uh, you're, you're feeling more criticism than you're feeling love, and you're feeling uh, truth coming forward. Aren't Christians supposed to be people of grace? Aren't we supposed to be people of mercy? And yet sometimes the message that comes through religious people, not necessarily God's people, but religious people, can be very condemning. But back to the question of judging, doesn't the Bible say that we should discern Doesn't the Bible say that we have to make judgments between what is right and wrong and good and evil? And actually, there are different words and different contexts that are used here, and I think you might be surprised at what the Bible has to say about judgment. So we're going to jump in today in James chapter 4. I think this is, what is this, the 19th installment of the James series? I told you it was going to take a while, but we're not in a hurry, right? James 4, 11 and 12, it says, don't speak evil against each other dear brothers and sisters, if you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Pretty powerful words. So we're going to look at four things today. The first is, James warns us never to speak evil against one another. The Bible is very clear about slander and gossip. We are never to slander. We are never to gossip about other people. Matthew 15, 18 says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth are from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Our words are an indication of the condition of our heart. You can have a heart of mercy that is compassionate towards other people, or you can have a critical spirit, a critical heart that tears people down and looks for the faults in other people. An indication that you see everybody else's faults and you don't see your own is a real good indication that you have a critical spirit. One of the uh, words that we need to understand very clearly is the word Satan. His name literally means slanderer. So you are never more like Satan than when you are slandering someone else. You're actually doing his work. You're accusing. And it's interesting that as I talk to rabbis about their view of the devil or Satan, they have a very different view than the Christian view. They see him as a prosecuting attorney. They see him as someone who comes along before God and accuses you, and you better not give him the opportunity to find things in your life that he can accuse, a little different. We see him more as a a completely evil being. But one thing is for sure, he is definitely an accuser. He wants to accuse you before God. He wants to put accusing words in your heart, As a matter of fact, sometimes out of nowhere, we'll get this idea in our head, uh, this accusation that everybody's against us, that people are judging us. How many of you uh, talk to yourself in your mind? Now you're lying if you don't raise your hand. What are you saying to yourself? What are the words that are there? To uh, go along with what my friends from AA and 12-step programs say, why are you letting somebody live rent-free in your head? And yet sometimes we let the enemy start this process, this negative process where we go into this negative loop and we start seeing negative things about ourselves, and we get negative about other people and we start tearing ourselves up and we start tearing everybody else up. When you do that, whose work are you doing? So listen to what I say and, and remember this. This is an easy way to remember. You are never more like God than when you forgive, especially somebody that doesn't deserve it. You're being like God. And you say, yeah, but you don't know what it's... Well, all of us know what it's like. Is there anybody here that doesn't have a faulty life? Is there anybody here that's perfect? The whole point is, is that once we receive the mercy of God, we extend it to other people. And if we understand who we are in God, then we know that we don't have ground to stand on to condemn other people and to point out the imperfections in their life. You say, what about talking about sin? We've got to be tough on sin. Yeah, we need to proclaim the truth, but we can proclaim the truth in a way that doesn't condemn people. And it's funny how sometimes we tend to pick the sins that are our favorite sins. We see those sins in the world and we don't see the other sins in the world, like religious hypocrisy, like pride. Pride is like carbon monoxide. It's colorless, odorless. It creeps into your life and it kills you before you even know it. <clears throat> who said it at the conference we were last week about pride? I think I said it last week. I'll say it again. If Imagine what pride did to one of God's most beautiful angels in turning him into Satan. What do you think it'll do to you? Pride is so destructive. It's so uh, crazy. It's it It creeps into our life. So people say, but what if it's true? What if that person is or does this? Well, The Bible says that when we cover somebody's sin, and that doesn't mean to cover over what they're doing, but when we pray for mercy for them, instead of going around town talking about their sins, and there's the infamous prayer meeting from years ago that I heard where a lady stood up and said, I want to pray for so-and-so. She doesn't know her husband's having an affair on her. You see, sometimes it's true, but it's not helpful, is it? Okay, that, what, that church prayer meeting did not go very far in glorifying God and helping people to get better. There's a time and a way to minister to people. Shouldn't we rather advocate for people that are caught in sin? Shouldn't we rather say, Lord, I was once like that and God give them the grace and mercy to know you, help the love that I have for them to show them the way so that they can see how forgiving you are and how you can transform a life? And I want to tell you, I love that Thanksgiving video that we had up last week about preparing your heart for Thanksgiving. Should we play it again for Christmas? Because when we go into family uh, gatherings, many times what happens is we fall into old patterns that go all the way back to childhood. And we go, man, I wasn't very much like Jesus. And that's because we get caught in these patterns and we go back into these old things, these old ways that we did, and we get trapped in those. And I don't want to be that way. I want to be like Jesus I want to look like Jesus. I want to show mercy like Jesus. There is a day coming, and we're going to talk about this. I'll jump to point four real quick, that that we are going to stand before God, and he's going to judge us. But in this age in which we live, he says he is not willing that any should perish. God's perfect will is that all would come to know him and repent of their sins so that they would be forgiven and not stand in the judgment and not hear their name called in the Lamb's book of life do we understand what that's all about? Too often what we've done at the church is we've called out people's sins and we haven't told them, please come and stand with me at the foot of the cross because I'm on the list too. And whatever you're struggling with, whatever sin you're battling, whatever temptation you're battling, I want to stand with you. I'm not going to condemn you. I know what it's like to be a sinner and I want to take your hand and I want to help you come to a point of transformation. I would say this, if you're not personally involved in something, you should not speak it out. If you're not part of the solution and you're not part of the problem, then you shouldn't be talking about it. Is that true? Proverbs sixteen twenty eight says, a perverse person, a perverse person, strong words, stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Listen to this in Galatians 6. I love this because this captures the heart of God and how he wants us to be. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Which means getting on the phone and yelling at them and telling them they're going to hell, right? I'm being sarcastic. I'm glad you got that. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. See, what happens is we get tempted to become proud and we think we're better than other people. We always need to have in our heart this understanding that we're all broken and we all need the Lord. And then it says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You will fulfill the law of Christ If you are carrying one another's burdens, instead of saying, boy, that person's going downhill fast, and man, I'm sorry to see it happen. You are brokenhearted for them, and you're crying out to God for them. You're fasting and praying for them. You're loving them in any way that you can. And you're gentle with them in presenting the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on. He says in verse 3, if anyone thinks there's something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. And this tips the hand of the motivation for a lot of people that gossip. They are glad that somebody is worse than them. Because if somebody's worse than me, there's this comparative righteousness that maybe there's some hope for me. And that's not where Jesus wants us to be. Beware of taking on a critical spirit, a heart of pride that sees and emphasizes others' faults. By the way, if there's a true offense, if somebody is really caught in a sin, go to the proper spiritual authority and speak to them and do everything you can to help that person be restored instead of condemning them. I want our church to be a safe place where people can hear truth. I want people to be convicted of sin I don't want them to be condemned by the things that we speak or the way that we approach people. Does that make sense? All right, and we'll go on to point two. So when is judging someone wrong? Well, it's never appropriate to take God's seat. It's very in- interesting. The word here, krino, or krinos, uh, the word to judge, and anakrenos is another word that's used inter- interchangeably. Uh, It's used in a New Testament context that's different than the way that we usually think. It doesn't mean to discern. What that word means is you're climbing into God's seat, the high seat of the judge, looking down on people and pronouncing sentence. That's what that word means. If you look at it in context, that's what it's saying. None of us deserves to sit on the seat of God. The Bible tells us there's a day coming It talks about the judgment seat of Christ, and it talks about the bema, the high seat of judgment. It's the high place where the judge would sit and would look down and pronounce judgment. There's only one that has the right to make that judgment. Jesus demonstrated this with the woman caught in adultery, which I think is the funniest title to any story because it takes more than one, doesn't it? Where was the guy caught in adultery? How did this whole thing happen? We know it was a setup. Why? Because hypocrites were involved hello. You know, the Bible's really honest about things, if you notice that. <laughs> but you need to pay attention and catch what's going on here. And Jesus says to him, yeah, you know, the word says that if anybody commits adultery, that they're going to pay the penalty for sin. And in, in, the, in the country that they were in, in Israel, there was a, uh, a judicial problem. There was a civil law that said you couldn't commit adultery. So Jesus says, anybody that's without sin, that has never committed this sin or any other sin, you pick up the stone and throw it first. It says from the oldest to youngest, they drop the stones. Why? Because I think people realize that there was really only one that had a right to throw any stones. And can you imagine the scene when Jesus turns to this woman? He says, woman, where are those that accuse you? And the only one that was qualified to accuse her was who? The one who was standing in front of her. And she says, no one, my Lord. Now, notice what he says. He says, then go. Go, you're going to live, but sin no more. He didn't compromise with her. He told her, he said, don't get involved in this kind of thing. You know this is wrong. Let me just read into what Jesus said there. But he's saying, go and don't do this again. But I extend mercy to you. I extend grace to you. That's the heart of Christ in this moment. When people stand before the Lord and the names are read out of the Lamb's book of life, there is one thing that gets you in that book, and that is that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We sang about it this morning. I love that song about how his blood proclaims a better word for us. That's out of Hebrews, where it talks about the blood of Christ is better than the blood of Abel. It speaks a different word. What does it speak? It speaks mercy. It speaks forgiveness. The one thing that's going to keep you out of heaven is that you rejected the gift of eternal life, the Lord Jesus Christ, his precious blood that washes our sin clean. It's not going to be because you lived a perfect life. If anybody thought that was going to happen, I just want to undeceive you. That's the one thing, rejecting the lamb and rejecting his gift, his free gift of eternal life. How different is this word judgment than discernment? Now, the Bible does tell us to discern, doesn't it? Diacrinos is a different word, okay? We get the word discernment from that. It doesn't mean to stand in the high place, it means to listen to the voice and heart of God and discern what is motivating a situation and what is at work in that situation. But it doesn't have the idea that you are proclaiming judgment over that person or that situation, it's just the Lord showing you what's right or wrong in that situation. Are we right to discern whether somebody has fruit in their life? You better believe it. And I'll be the first to tell you in my life, I've been taken in by people that told me they were Christians only to find out they were swindlers. I got to the point living in the Bible Belt where I told people, when you're done with the job and I've paid you and we've agreed on everything, then I'll tell you whether you're a Christian or not. Because everybody was a Christian that came to my door to do something. So, can we be honest about this? Discernment is definitely needed, but discernment doesn't mean that we look down on people. It means that God is giving us wisdom and the ability to know. Number three, now this might surprise you because I find a lot of Christians don't understand this. I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 is a very powerful chapter. It begins by talking about those who uh, victimize children, those who don't properly treat children and how God is very grieved by that. But in Matthew 18, 15, it says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point it their, out their fault just between the two of you. Let me stop there for a second. What do most people do? When somebody sins against them or you become offended by somebody, what you do is you get on Facebook, like I saw somebody do on my Facebook account last week. One of my friends pointed out the faults of people in their life. And I just cringed for them, and I thought, this is not going to be good. This is not going to do well for your family. It's going to hurt a lot of people. I'm that close to getting off Facebook, okay? I've, got to, I've just got to be honest with you. It just it seems like there's always something there that's... I know, and my, my younger children tell me, Dad, we got off Facebook a long time ago. What's your problem? I know. I'm slow. The Bible says just between two of you, because the hope is that it's not going to cause division in the church. And that you, as two mature believers, followers of Christ, will sit down together and work it out, and the people will apologize and bring restitution or do what's right. There are times when you can't work things out, okay? And it says there, it says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. By the way, what's the goal of meeting with that person? To win the argument, right? to win them over, to restore a relationship. Wow. (laughs) There's going to be a test at the end of the message here, so pay attention, okay? Now it says this, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Look for people that you both respect. Look for people that are mature. You're not looking for people that are going to be partisan, that are people that are going to back you up. You're not going to bring bouncers to this fight, <laughs> okay? But you're bringing people that are mature in the church that are going to help you bring reconciliation and that aren't going to let this get all over the place. And I've heard people say, and I've even done it myself over the years, I need to process this with some people before I go talk to that person. Well, let me tell you what happens. When somebody offends you, when something goes wrong and you process it with other people, you have now shared the offense with them. Chances are they will take up that offense, almost like you pick up a card from the, if you're playing cards, from the draw pile. And what happens is once you take up offense, now you've got to deal with it. You weren't offended in the first place, but you've taken up that person's offense. And even if they reconcile with a person that they were offended by, you will still carry that offense and it causes disunity, distrust in the body of Christ. This is why this is so clear and what he tells us to do here, Okay. In verse 17, it says, if they still refuse to listen, tell the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we'll read verse 19 in a moment. But the Bible says there there are times when you can't work things out. In the history of this church, there have been conflicts between people that our elders have had to get involved with and work with. I think about some of those and a number of them have involved money, but a couple times when people owed money, there was one person that borrowed uh, tens of thousands of dollars from a number of different people and you're looking like, where can I go for a loan? And uh, they didn't pay it back. They kept making promises. And we tried to work things out. We set a payment reschedule thing and whatever. I even had one guy's employees call me. This has actually happened to me twice. You've got a person who's a member in your church and they have not paid me for months. What do you do with that as a pastor? Well, what you do is you, first of all, keep it confidential and call that person in. And then we sit down and we try to work it out. But I've actually had to ask people, our elders have gotten together, we've actually had to ask people to leave our church. You say, are you serious? Are you serious? And yeah, I am because I take the word seriously. Now I want you to look at, it says there in verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the intercessor's dream verse. Lord, we just right now, we bind the enemy and we release that has nothing to do with that. Nothing. Look at the context here. Now you can find that in other parts of scripture about taking spiritual authority and binding the enemy, but not here. The context here is Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, you are my leadership team, you are the beginning of the ecclesia, you are the leadership of the church, and I am giving you the authority to forgive sin or to release sin or to hold on to sin and, and to bring people to a place of judgment. God has given the church the ability to discern. Why? Because God wants the church to preserve holiness and integrity in the church. When people are allowed to run free in the church and do the kind of things that they do, like build people out of money, and I've heard stories that'll break your heart. What do you do when a widow comes to you and says, I gave a contractor thousands of dollars and they said that I never gave them any money and never showed up to do the work? And they're a leader in another church. And a word to all of us that do business in the community, we should be able to do business with one another. But why is it? Well, the Bible warns us that there will be people in wolves in sheep's clothing. In 1 Corinthians 5, it talks about people that don't get into the kingdom of God. They're sexually immoral, swindlers, drunkards, people that are in the body, but they're not living the life it's contingent upon the leadership to make sure that those people are given an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to be restored, and if they refuse to be restored, to leave. I had a a young rabbi in a meeting, and our rabbi rabbinical evangelical dialogue asked me, he said, do you follow that? And I said, yeah. He said, have you ever had to ask anybody leave your church because of sexual immorality? And I said, no, thanks be to God. I said, I've had to correct some people, I said, but we have had to ask people that were swindlers. And he had been reading 1 Corinthians, so he asked me about that verse. I love when the rabbis read the New Testament. After all, I'm reading the Old Testament all the time. They should be, right? He said, you know what? I have no problem with that. He says, I'm going to talk to the other rabbis, he said, because we have a lot of problem with people that are preying on other people in our synagogue, and we don't do anything about it. He says, I like what I'm hearing from you. I thought, that's good. That made me feel good. So... How many of you knew, by the way, that those verses didn't have anything to do with, that you thought they were for prayer? There there are certain parts of Scripture, like Proverbs, and even in James, where all of a sudden James will bounce from one idea to another. There's a flow of consciousness here, and context is the key interpreting Scripture. So look what he goes on to say. Again, I truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is talking about the authority of the church. Did you know the name for church in Greek is ekklesia? Before it was used in relation to the church, it was used in regard to the synagogue. And before it was used in regard to the synagogue, in Greek culture, it was used to refer to city council or a body of leaders, a body of elders that uh, worked over something. And the ecclesia was a group that was gathered with legal authority. They gathered together with authority to do something together that they couldn't do individually. How does that relate to the church? God wants to preserve the unity and integrity of the church. So then when we get together, there is a spiritual authority here, and there is a unity here, and we have done everything we can to preserve and walk in that unity. So there is an application in prayer. And that is that when we walk in unity, we have greater authority. When we walk without unity, when there's disunity in our midst, when there's division, when there's gossip and slander, and there's another word called factions, seditions in the King James, if you look those up, those are people that create division in the body of Christ. Look at the six things that God hates. Yes, seven, it says, in the Old Testament. The last one is people who stir up dissension among brothers or sisters in a community. It's not just a family. The word there literally means a community. You You stir up dissension. So we need to preserve that. The Expositors Greek New Testament says this, quote, the 12 for the moment are for Jesus, the ecclesia. They were the nucleus of it, the nucleus of the church. The binding and loosing generically, equals exercising judgment on conduct, here specifically treating sin as pardonable or the reverse, a particular exercise of the function of judging. So to answer your question, should the church judge? Yes, in certain conditions. And as a pastor and as a leader, even in the community, and and by the way, as our community comes together with greater unity and pastors and networks are working together. We have literally shut down people that have come into this community that are charlatans. I remember it was about eight years ago now that somebody came in, and they wanted to hold all these meetings in Akron. And the bishops, some of the bishops and the elders got together. We talked about it, and we told them, no, you're not going to do anything in our churches, and we're going to spread the word because we know you're not for real. That's when leadership functions properly to protect the body of Christ. And oh, I wish we could do it with some of the television preachers. There are good ones out that are doing awesome stuff, but there are people that are tearing up people's lives, and the local pastors usually have to do the work of repair for the bad theology that comes from some of the things that are said in television. I'm not against TV or radio ministry. I think it's awesome, but I think we need to be careful about that. Let me, uh, one other thing about this, and this is something that we need to hear in the season that we live in. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5 if you have your Bible. It'll be up on the screen, too, if you just want to look up there. I got this new paper that's so thick it's hard to separate the pages. I cut the tree myself. I dried it. You think Martha Stewart was cool. Man, I make my own paper. First Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5.1 says this, and this is Paul. He's an apostle, so he is a translocal leader. He's a leader that, that re- relates to a number of local congregations. And he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. I knew this was Family Sunday, so I haven't put the rest of that verse in. You can look it up later but there was an egregious sexual sin that was happening in the community. And Paul says, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So when you were assembled, I am with you in spirit. He's talking about the ecclesia here. He says, in the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What does hand, hand a man over to Satan? That sounds scary. Does that sound awesome? Scary. Okay. What it meant was that he was uh, kept from participating in communion and in the fellowship of the church. That's what that means, to be put out of the church. What happens right now in our community, if somebody is living a life like that, they just go to another church in the community. The word here, like I said, is the ecclesia. It was used in reference to a governmental body. So Paul is saying, when the church comes together, you need to contend for unity and holiness. Anyone who violated the principles of unity and holiness were called to account... With the idea of restoration. The good news is, if you read on in 2 Corinthians, this man was brought back into the church because he repented. And Paul says, Don't be too tough on him. He's repented. Bring him back in as a brother and and help be part of his healing. That's the way the church is supposed to work. Okay? How many of you, this is new, never heard this before? I find a lot of Christians have never heard this teaching. Well, Paul goes on. He's not done in this chapter, and here's the part that we need to hear. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, he says this, I wrote to you my letter, and this is just a couple verses after what I just read. He says, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Does God ever tell us that we should not have anything to do with sinful people in the world? Did Jesus ever model that we should not have anything to do with sinful people in the world? As a matter of fact, when the the religious people told him, what are you doing hanging out with these tax collectors and these politicians? And he says to them, I came to save those who needed me, not to take care of the righteous. Paul goes on here in verse 11, he says, But now I'm writing you, to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral. And by the way, the church has often made that one of their top sins. We have a hierarchy of sins. But he goes on to say, Or greedy. How many of us have, uh oh, gotcha, didn't I? How's the church dealt with greed over the years? Or an idolater or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, the contemporary American church has gotten this wrong most of our history. And what we've done is we tend to judge those who are in the world and tolerate sin in the church. I'm sorry, but this is true. We judge people in the world, and we tolerate those who are sinful in the church. And what happens is it discredits our testimony to the world because they say if those people are living like I am, but they're religious and they're putting their nose in the air and looking down at me, why do I want to be part of them? I'm just going to be honest with us here. Are you, are you getting the understanding of what it means to, to judge and discern and the difference between these two things? Why should we expect those who don't know our Savior to act like Jesus? And by the way, there are lots of really good people in the world that are doing awesome things, And you look at that and you go, man, the church could learn from that. When I found my biological mom uh, at age 49, I'd been told that she was dead and I had a dream that uh, she was alive and that I needed to find her. And Janice and I discerned that that was really from the Lord. So we did this work and I found Anita, my biological mom, living in the house that she lived in when she was a teenager and had become pregnant with me many years before. And it was probably one of the worst neighborhoods on the north side of uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, it looked like a bombed-out zone. And she told me, she said, that ever since families had moved out and people started running out the things and then drug dealers had moved in and there were crack houses and there were houses that were dealing and all sorts of stuff happening. And she told me this was her life when I started finding out about her. She said, um, Every once in a while, my friend Mia and I, when we hear gunshots, we just hit the floor, and then we'll call each other a few minutes later and say, did you get hit? Did anything get hit in your house? And that was the life that she lived on the north side of Pittsburgh. When she was very sick, she said, I probably would have died if it wasn't for these two ladies down the street. And I met these two ladies. They were lesbians. They were um, actually both military people who had... Had such a rough life because, you know, it, you know, in the military at that point, this is several years ago, uh, things were pretty tough for them. But she said, if it wasn't for those ladies, they brought me food, they brought me soup, they took care of me, they took me to the doctor. So for this Christian guy, I was thinking, man, where were the Christians in the neighborhood? Because these ladies didn't profess Christ, and uh, I got to meet them and I thanked them. I said, I want to, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you, and they knew that I was a pastor. We had a very interesting interaction. I got the impression they were hiding out in this neighborhood because nobody bothered them because the neighborhood was so bad. There are lots of people in the world that are living pretty good lives by the best knowledge that they have. They just don't know Jesus. And if we don't show them a life that is different, a life of transformation, a life of compassion, and a life of love. Instead of judging them and make it all about, we're better than you, religious people are better than you, nobody's going to want to know Jesus. Now, granted, I'll tell you this, and and I'm probably going to do a message on this in 2020. Is our media descriptive or proscriptive? What I mean is, are they describing our culture, or are they trying to portray the culture they want us to be? I think they're proscriptive, because I haven't seen one positive view of who a Christian is, and there are lots of good Christians out there, okay? Who started most of the hospitals? It was the Christians. Who started most of the university? It was the Christians. Most of the charities have been started by Christians. And if you look at the history there, the church has a pretty good, but you wouldn't know that if you watched television. How many of you have seen a normal, balanced, spirit-filled Christian in a television show or a movie recently? Not many. So the other side of fairness is we really have to do hard work because we're working against somebody who's slandering us. Does that make sense? And that hurts sometimes. But it's up to the church to stand up. And they slander Jesus, by the way, too. If they spoke ill of him and they rejected him, they're going to reject us. But there are people out there that need to hear about Jesus. And they need to hear about his grace and they need to hear about his love. I feel so strongly that we need to understand this about judgment and discernment and the difference. When we discern there's a brokenness in somebody, it should lead us to a heart of compassion that says, God, how can I pray for, encourage, help this person through where they're at to a place where they understand that God loves them and wants to change them? How can we lovingly share and reveal Christ to the world and warn them of the judgment to come? That's the question for us today. The fourth thing I want to share with you is this, and I'll have more to say about this. I'm just going to introduce this, but we're going to talk more about this. God has given authority to civil leaders in our world to judge and establish laws. At the conference we were at a weekend ago, we heard Attorney Ellen Full, who is, uh, she's now the International Program Specialist. Also, she was the former legal counsel for Heartbeat International, which is the largest Uh, right-to-life organization in the world. They are a connection of uh, Christian-run homes and ministries that take care of women that have unwanted pregnancies and help them carry their children to term and give them alternatives to abortion. They are the anti-Planned Parenthood, and they're awesome people, and they are operating all over the world. And Alan Fould got up in the uh, meeting and she looked out. She was an attorney in Cleveland years ago, and now she's based in Columbus with this organization. She says, hey, I'm looking out at some of you. I've gotten several of you out of, out of jail. Well, you know, you're at a Christian conference, and you're thinking, where is she going with that? I'll tell you where she went with that in a moment. But God gives civil government to create law. Romans 13, 1 through 7, talks about, and I don't have that scripture up there because we don't have a lot of time but it talks about how God has given civil leaders the right to establish authority and how we need to honor the powers that be. Now, this shakes me up, and I, this is why I'm not going to take a lot of time on this today, because I need to take more time in the future. This is during the reign of Claudius, the Roman emperor. He was the first, the beginning of the early persecution in the church. And Paul was saying, you need to honor those who are in authority because there is no authority other than that which has been instituted by God. That's hard to hear. I look at the authority sometime and I go, Lord, are you sure that they're instituted by God? No, I'm being honest with you. And the Lord said, you need to pray. And by the way, you need to know that a people that are in rebellion against God, God will give them childish leaders. If you want to read about that, read the first six chapters of Isaiah. It talks about a country that's in rebellion against God and how all systems begin to break down because God withdraws his hand. So sometimes we have the leaders that we have created and the leaders that we deserve. That's why we're called to pray for our leaders. But what happens when society goes bad and civil law violates biblical truth? In the Roman Empire, Christians had to take a stand because there was a proclamation that went out that said, unless you proclaim that Caesar was God and bowed down and made a sacrifice on this particular day. And people would say things like, what's wrong with that? Because, you know, there are lots of gods out there. You can worship Jesus every other day of the year. All you have to do is bow the knee to Caesar. And this is when you ask the question, God, how can you say that civil authority is established by you? How can you say in Nazi Germany that civil authority was established by God? And by the way, the Christians there at every juncture had opportunities to speak out, and they didn't. The Confessing Church was the only church that I'm aware of in Germany. And if you've read some of their stuff, many of those men like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others uh, died in Nazi prisons. What happens when society goes bad and civil law violates biblical truth? In American history, an example of that is slavery. When it was actually proclaimed in state legislatures that people with dark skin could be enslaved for generations and generations, and they weren't, entire, they weren't fully human beings, and that was codified in the law. It wasn't too many years ago that we met with officials from Cuyahoga Falls and we talked to them about, they used to have property codification in their laws that you could not sell your property to people of color. There were signs years ago coming into Cuyahoga Falls that says, it talked about being a white city. What happens when the government doesn't reflect what the Bible says? I want to tell you something I'm proud of from this region, especially Hudson, Oberlin, Painesville, these were all stops on the Underground Railroad. And people in this area were among the most powerful fighters to end slavery. The abolition movement was centered in New York, Connecticut, and Ohio. And those were the places that that had the strongest representation. And they fought hard to end that. Same thing in England. There were people that fought for many years. I know John Brown is controversial. His old homestead is right up there off of Hines Hill Road. We lived across the street from there for a while on Hines Hill before we moved. And um, I thought, this is where that that barn, this is where he used to hide slaves on the way up Route 91, one of the oldest routes to go all the way up to the lake and take people into Canada. Oberlin College students used to go on spring breaks down into Kentucky and help slaves escape over the Ohio River and get into Ohio and all the way up to the lake. There was one example in Oberlin, I've shared this before, you need to read the book, Oberlin, the city that started the Civil War, where they arrested 130, I think it was 130 men in the city of Oberlin for hiding a slave because they all confessed to it, even though only one guy hid the slave. It was a front page story in the New York Times for almost five months because they had to build a special encampment to imprison these guys on Public Square in Cleveland. That's good history. I'm proud of that in Ohio. What about abortion? Abortion is a modern example. When Ellen Fole looked out of the group and and saw some of the guys, and she said, hey, I remember getting you out of jail, these were pastors now my age that during the Operation Rescue had chained themselves to abortion clinic doors to protest and were arrested and put in jail. Tom Hare was one of them. He said, I was one of those guys. I said, Tom, you just went up in my estimation. You got arrested for standing against abortion? Yes, that's cool. And they were pledged to nonviolence. They said, we're not going to do violence to end violence. I'm going to teach on this later because as Christians, I think we need to be aware that we have a not a responsibility to judge but when society goes awry and the civil laws go awry and start turning against the truth we have an obligation to speak out. I don't think we ever have an obligation to become violent unless human lives are being put on the line and people say well what about abortion and I say, until they're forcing people to get abortions I can't advocate taking up arms. I actually had a conversation with a Kent State student years ago. He said, I know how to make a bomb. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to Akron. I'm going to blow up an abortion clinic. I said, you don't have a biblical justice reason to do that. I said, because people are choosing to do that right now. They're not being forced to. If they were being forced to do that, then you would have the right to stand, because I believe in just war. By the way, you probably won't hear 99.9% of pastors talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about it more in 2020 because I think we're coming into a season where we as believers need to take a stand for the truth and we need to know how to do it. It needs to be without hypocrisy. It needs to be with words of love. And my two models are still, one is a Christian and one was not. One was Gandhi and the other was, and Gandhi studied Jesus and that's where he came up with his model of nonviolence. The other was Martin Luther King Jr., who I think, and I, I know a lot of people are saying bad things about him. I still think he nailed it on nonviolence and resistance. It wasn't until, and for those of you that are younger, you didn't have this experience, but all of us would watch the news with our parents, and it wasn't until the 60s, when we're sitting there watching the news, and there's Bull Connor with his dogs down in, where was that, Georgia. And uh, there are these people peacefully marching, singing songs to Jesus. And they let the dogs loose on them to attack them. I remember people in the north saying, we had no idea this was going on. And all of a sudden, people started getting involved and started becoming more active in that. Is there a time to take a stand? You better believe it. The church needs to rise up and we need to speak out. I like something that attorney Ellen Fole said. She said, the whole product of law, everything that we do in law comes from, starts in Genesis 1, where God creates order out of chaos. She says, law is to protect people. And when the law does not protect people and the law begins to hurt people, the church needs to be the conscience of the nation and speak out. So let me close with this, Micah 6.8. Taking this a little bit out of context, but I think the words are very powerful for us today. It says, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? I love it in the King James. That's why I kept it there. This is good counsel for the age that we live in. We need to model a heart of biblical justice. That means we need to live according to the standard of the word. As a living testimony to the people around us of what Jesus teaches us to do. That we need to have a heart of humility that doesn't judge people, but extends the love of truth of God in a way that they can contextualize in their life and say, this person's for real. I'm going to pay attention to what they're saying. And finally, we need to have a heart of mercy so that all will come to know the transforming power of God. Ellen Foles said, it's time to draw a line in the stand, and she asked a question that I'll ask you today. Where's that line? And I pray for my younger brothers and sisters here today, those of you that are in college, because it's never been so fiercely anti-Christian as it is now. And early in 2020, I'm going to be talking about what happened with higher criticism and how The whole idea of social criticism and deconstructionism has entered our universities and how insidious it's been in destroying anything that's Christian in education. It hasn't always been that way. We'll talk about that another day. Can we just take a moment and bow our heads? I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward today I said, Lord, how do you want me to end this? And I, I believe we need to have a quiet response in prayer before the Lord, just you and him right now. First of all, I want to ask for those that have been judging, those that have been slandering or gossiping, God is calling you to repent right now. He's saying it's time to lay that down. It doesn't reflect him. Can we just take a moment, and I'm going to pray and Uh, I've done this in the past. God has convicted me about it. I still find myself tending toward that at times, and the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. Lord, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would help us. Some of us were raised in a milieu or a culture where gossip and slander was part of the very air that we breathed. Lord, I ask you to help us not to be those people never to be critical of others, never to judge others, never to take your seat. Forgive us, Lord, for taking your place, the high seat of judgment. God, have mercy on us. And Lord, we know your word says that whatever measure we use to judge others will be the measure used against us. The Lord is telling me some of you have been stuck in your lives and you can't figure out why you're not moving forward. And the Lord is saying it's because you've taken that position of high judgment. And the Lord is saying, release that and allow my grace and mercy to flow in your lives. So, Lord, we just ask you to do that right now. Forgive us. Cleanse our hearts, God. Purify our hearts, God. Help us to be people that speak truth and love, that gently restore people that are caught in sin. And secondly, I want to pray for that last question that attorney Ellen Full asked, and that is, where is our line? Are we willing to draw a line in our lives and say, this is what biblical justice is about. This is what God's truth is about. I need to stand for truth. And Lord, it's hard in the world that we live in because there's so much criticism. There is a spirit of criticism and a spirit of slander that has been released in our land. Help us, God, in the midst of this to be people that shine. I thought about it last night as I was thinking about this message and I was sitting in the room in the, in the dark, but the Christmas tree was on, Lord. Help us to be literally in the season like the Christmas lights. Help us to shine out and help us to do it with a heart of love and humility so the people around us go, you know what, they're for real. They're willing to take a stand, but I don't feel condemned by them. Help us, Lord, and forgive us when we have wanted the approval of human beings more than we've wanted your approval. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, God. Let's stand together. God is so good. Can we just lift up praise to him? He forgives us when we confess our sins to him. It says he is faithful and just, and he forgives our sins. 1 John So, Lord, we just thank you. We just give you praise and glory and honor. Can you just lift your voices with me and thank the Lord? Lord, I want to thank you for your patience with me. I want to thank you, Lord, for your grace. I want to thank you, Lord, for your mercy in my life. I want to thank you, Lord, that you have not treated me as my sins deserve. I want to thank you, God, that you've activated a heart of mercy. When I was born with a heart of judgment, I just pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts today and that you would release your grace and mercy in us. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, just help us in this season to remember. I love the words that John and Dory read this morning about the first Sunday in Advent. Lord, just help us to keep our hearts oriented toward you during this Christmas season. Help us to remember what it's all about. It's all about hope. It's all about the hope that we have in you. Bless us and go with us, God, and use us for your glory. Make us a blessing to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go in the blessing of the Lord.